welcome to the fourth episode in Herbert Smith Freehills' podcast series on construction contract and claims management. For those of you who are new to this podcast series, my name is Noe Minamakata and I'm the professional support lawyer in the London Construction Disputes team. In this episode, I'm joined by Olivia Liang, an associate in our construction disputes team in London to discuss how to prepare for a potential construction dispute. Hello, Olivia. Hi, Noe. Thanks for having me. So it may not come as a surprise to our listeners that given the complexity of the issues and the amounts typically involved in construction disputes, preparing properly for a potential construction dispute is a crucial process, but one which can be expensive and time-consuming. In this episode, we'll discuss what to do in a scenario where a formal dispute is likely but hasn't actually arisen, and how parties can best prepare for that eventuality. Olivia, perhaps we can begin by talking about what can be one of the most time-consuming and costly aspects of construction disputes, namely documents. Can you take us through the various steps that parties should take to manage documentary evidence? Well, as a first step, parties should ensure that potentially relevant documents are retained. This is relevant for both potential claimants and defendants. Document retention is important because construction disputes almost invariably turn on contemporaneous documents, you obviously don't want to lose access to crucial evidence. It's particularly important in a litigation context, where parties have a duty to preserve evidence. In fact, the new disclosure pilot scheme for the Business and Property Courts, including the Technology and Construction Court, or TCC, now prescribes specific steps which parties must take to preserve documents, meaning that any failure to comply is potentially more likely to result in cost sanctions further down the line. The usual practice when it comes to document retention is to issue a document hold as soon as possible. The hold should take the form of a written notification to individuals who are likely to be involved in the issues in dispute, which identifies particular documents and categories of documents that could be relevant, and notifies individuals of their duty not to delete or destroy such documents. Parties should also take steps to suspend any routine deletion of documents. For example, parties should, at a minimum, liaise with their IT department to ensure that backup tapes of server data are not destroyed or overwritten. And of course, the flip side of document retention is managing the risk of individuals creating potentially damaging documents which could be disclosed in the event that there is a formal dispute. Definitely. To begin with, the legal team should inform individuals that they need to be extremely cautious in creating any written documents relating to the dispute, as these may eventually need to be disclosed. That includes emails, internal memos and reports. In particular, any comments on sensitive issues should ideally be dealt with orally. If written communications are unavoidable, they should be as factual as possible and, importantly, should not include any admissions of responsibility or unfavourable opinions as to the issues in dispute. Also, to mitigate the risk of any unhelpful documents becoming disclosable, parties should ensure that, as much as possible, New documents are protected by privilege. So, for example, communications wherever appropriate should be prepared by lawyers and, where appropriate, any written reports on sensitive topics should take the form of a report of legal advice. There are various privilege rules to consider, such as the need for communications to be confidential, but we unfortunately don't have sufficient time to cover these in the episode. Thanks, Olivia. So once you've put in place these measures, I assume the next challenge is to begin collating a set of documents which could be relevant. Yes, although depending on how close you are to formal proceedings, it's worth bearing in mind that any document harvesting would probably be on a smaller scale 
compared to the harvesting exercise that you would implement where there is a formal dispute. The same goes for any steps you take to review and manage documents. And what kinds of documents would you expect to be relevant on a potential construction dispute? Well, as we know, each project is likely to generate its own set of facts and documentation. But there are definitely a few categories of documents which are likely to be relevant to most construction disputes. The first two categories are contractual documentation, including the conditions, appendices, final specifications and drawings, and variation orders, and contemporaneous documents, such as correspondence between the parties. These documents are likely to be relevant for all kinds of construction disputes. For disputes which involve issues of contractual interpretation, pre-contractual documents, such as tender drawings, technical clarifications, pre-signing correspondence and draft specifications and drawings, are all likely to provide context to the terms of the agreements and assist with their interpretation. And what about potential disputes involving extension of time claims or claims for additional money? In claims for time, it will be important to collate any baseline amended schedules, as well as short-term programme look-aheads, any site logs, and daily monthly progress reports which could demonstrate the actual impact of any delay events. In claims for additional money, parties will need to pull together copies of any invoices, receipts and timesheets, basically any documents which could prove the quantum of loss, as well as the fact that the party has, in fact, incurred loss. Although on large construction projects you could be dealing with hundreds of thousands of potentially relevant documents, what's the best way to approach pulling together an initial pool of documents? Well, I think the starting point is for the legal team to provide a shopping list of potentially relevant documents to the project team, which can then be added to and or refined in the course of reviewing the documents provided. We often provide such a shopping list to our clients shortly after being instructed on a potential dispute. If project documents are stored on an online document management platform, it can also be helpful for the legal team to gain direct access to the platform. Another potentially time-saving approach is for the legal team to request a bulk download of, for example, all documents within a specific time frame, which can then be subsequently reviewed. If experts have already been engaged at this point, they will also be able to help identify the specific types of documents they think will be relevant to analysis, although expert document requests should be conveyed through the legal team. OK, and once you have the documents, are there any strategies for isolating the ones which are most likely to be relevant? Well, one option, which should ideally be explored relatively early on in the dispute preparation process, is to ensure that all potentially relevant documents are available on an electronic document management system, or EDMS. EDMSs can be enormous help when it comes to the initial process of searching for and organising documents, and they are vital for disputes which reach the disclosure stage. EDMSs allow parties to use keywords and date range searches to filter out irrelevant documents and to reduce the initial pool of documents that need to be reviewed. Parties can also use tags to code documents according to specific issues, and these documents can then be quickly retrieved later. If formal proceedings are commenced later down the line and disclosure is ordered, the use of EDMS platforms is fairly standard on mid- to high-value construction disputes. Although presumably the process and cost of getting these platforms up and running would be fairly significant. Yes, that's right. Using EDMS platforms requires significant upfront investment. It can be expensive to extract the data, particularly if many custodians are involved. Ongoing storage and hosting costs can also mount up very quickly. So using an EDMS platform may not be necessary or cost-effective for all matters, particularly if the amount in dispute is likely to be small 
or if there's a high chance the matter will settle before formal proceedings are issued. If, however, there is little chance of the matter settling before formal proceedings are commenced, or disclosure, it is worth considering front-loading costs and setting up an EDEMS platform as soon as possible, given the likelihood that one would need to be set up anyway in due course. Okay, and is there anything else parties can do relatively early on in the process to help organise documentary evidence? In my experience, it is good practice for parties to commence work on a chronology of events based on documentary evidence sooner rather than later, particularly with regard to claims for delay or disruption. A good chronology will highlight the events that are helpful to your case, as well as emphasise the ones which are not. A clear and comprehensive chronology can help parties to clarify the strengths and weaknesses of their own case before matters progress to a formal dispute. Chronologies will also help the legal team, who have been engaged, to prepare legal analyses of the claims. And in any event, parties are usually also expected to produce separate or composite chronologies by tribunals and courts, so the time and effort spent on producing a chronology is unlikely to be wasted. Okay, are there any other points which parties should take into account in the course of collating documentary evidence? One important consideration, if there is a possibility of court proceedings in the English Business and Property Courts, including the TCC, relates to the new obligation under the Disclosure Pilot Scheme to provide initial disclosure. Parties will most likely need to consider these rules, even if proceedings aren't ultimately commenced. In essence, initial disclosure requires a party to provide copies of 1. the key documents which it is relying on in its statement of case, and 2. the key documents that are necessary to enable the other parties to understand the claim or the defence that they have to meet. There are a number of circumstances in which initial disclosure is not required. For example, if parties agree to dispense with it, or if a party states that giving initial disclosure would require it or any other party to provide more than 1,000 pages or 200 documents, whichever is larger. It is conceivable that the page or document limit could be exceeded on complex construction disputes. It's therefore worth discussing at an early stage in the dispute whether initial disclosure is likely to be required If initial disclosure is likely to be necessary, parties should leave enough time to get the documents in order so they can be served at the same time as their statement of case. Now, you you mentioned expert advice earlier on. What are the main advantages of involving experts at an early stage, particularly when no formal proceedings have actually been commenced? Well, I think the main benefit of involving experts early on is that you can obtain a preliminary evaluation of the technical strengths and weaknesses of your case, which will help to shape the overall strategy going forward. This is obviously particularly important where the dispute involves several potentially overlapping extension of time claims or other highly technical issues. An unfavourable opinion could, for example, prompt parties to push for a commercial settlement or mediation. And as I briefly mentioned earlier, experts will also be able to assist with the fact-finding process by, for example, identifying specific categories of documents which are relevant to the issues in dispute and specific questions which need to be put to potential fact witnesses. It's also worth noting that if the issues in contention concern an extremely specialist field, there may only be a handful of people with the right qualifications and experience who are able to provide an expert opinion. If this is the case, it's sensible to identify and retain an expert as soon as possible, particularly if there's a risk of the other side poaching good candidates. And from a practical perspective, engaging an expert early on in the process means that you have the option of eventually appointing them to act as an expert witness if a formal dispute arises. Yes, that's right. 
although you can, of course, still choose to appoint a different expert as the expert witness. If there's a chance you don't want to retain the same expert for formal proceedings, you should consider taking precautions by, for example, ensuring that the preliminary expert report is protected by privilege to ensure that it does not become disclosable later down the line. And in terms of selecting an expert, you'll obviously want someone with the relevant professional qualifications and recent industry experience. Are there any other important factors to consider? Well, if you're engaging an expert with a view to potentially appointing them later on as an expert witness, you should also consider, first, whether they have experience of giving evidence in court or tribunal, and, second, how credible and convincing they are likely to appear. One way to gauge this is to seek informal feedback from others who have previously worked with them or have come up against them on other disputes. It goes without saying that the importance of selecting the correct expert cannot be overstated. Our experience is that in some cases, the dispute can be won or lost over the quality of the expert testimony. And from a practical perspective, how would you go about identifying specific candidates? Most law firms with significant experience in construction disputes will maintain internal lists of experts in the most common disciplines, such as quantum and delay, that they have worked with on previous disputes. For more specialised fields, such as extremely specific sub-disciplines within engineering, it may be necessary to ask for a recommendation from a professional institution. The usual process would be to identify a list of potential candidates and to ask them to provide CVs and to conduct conflict checks. Once conflicts have been cleared, it is usually helpful to conduct preliminary interviews, potentially with the involvement of some members of the project team, and to ask for a fee estimate for the cost of obtaining their preliminary views on the issues in dispute. Okay, so we've spent some time discussing experts. Now, are there any preparatory steps which parties could also take in terms of potential factual witnesses? Definitely. Mostly, these are a matter of common sense. The first step would naturally be to identify a list of potential witnesses and to obtain details of their availability over a sensible time frame, which should also contemplate various stages where their involvement is likely to be necessary if formal proceedings are issued, e.g. drafting and serving witness statements, including reply witness statements. If there are likely to be any availability issues, for example health problems, it may be prudent to arrange urgently for a witness statement to be taken. Obviously, this wouldn't be ideal if you don't have a clear idea of the issues in dispute. However, it would be better than having nothing at all, and you could always decide not to use the statement if, later down the line, the issues covered by the statement are superseded or more appropriate witnesses are identified. For potential witnesses who are about to retire or leave the organisation, you would also want to secure their cooperation as early as possible. And it's preferable to keep key project personnel within the organisation to ensure their cooperation until the dispute is resolved. Presumably that could, for some witnesses, involve agreeing some level of compensation for their time. Yes, that's right. It's not uncommon for parties to agree to cover potential witnesses' reasonable expenses and to compensate them for their time. You have to be careful, though, to avoid the appearance of trying to influence a witness's evidence. If a judge or a tribunal suspects that a witness has been influenced or is giving evidence they do not know is true, they are likely to give less weight to the witness's evidence and may also form an adverse view of the party relying on that evidence. But I suppose you could take steps to mitigate this risk by, for example, ensuring that payments for the potential witness's time are set based on a prorated share of their most recent salary. Yes, that's right. 
It's also generally good practice to inform witnesses in writing that payments are intended as compensation for their time and are not contingent on the content of their evidence or the outcome of the case. If a witness statement is eventually filed, it's usually worth noting this up front on the face of the statement to avoid the appearance of having attempted to conceal the payments. OK, thanks, Olivia. We've now covered a number of key steps that parties should take in the course of preparing for a potential construction dispute. Of course, the extent to which a party will need to implement these steps will vary depending on the status of the potential dispute, and there may be additional requirements depending on the method of dispute resolution set out in the contract. For example, for court proceedings, parties should also make sure that they follow the steps required by the pre-action protocol for construction and engineering disputes. And for arbitrations or adjudications, parties might need to take the extra step of considering who should be appointed on the tribunal or as the adjudicator. Yes, and it should go without saying that the amount of time and money which a party should spend on these preparatory steps will depend on matters such as the sums at stake and the likelihood of settlement. Front-loading work could lead to wasted costs if, for example, the parties come to an early commercial settlement or the issues in dispute change once the other side has had their say. It's therefore a balancing act. Well, thank you very much for your insights, Olivia. For a recap of what was discussed during this episode, please take a look at our handy checklist on how to prepare for a potential construction dispute, which can be downloaded from our website. The next episode in our Construction Contract and Claims Management series will be on how to navigate settlement discussions and prepare settlement agreements. will be hosted by Michael Sharp, who is an associate in our Construction Disputes team in London. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode.